Welcome to Podcast 111. Before we get to Pastor Wilson, I wanted to make sure you were aware of his most recent book for kids, Andrew and the Fire Drake. The boy can't remember who or where he is, but he does know that he has a task to do, and it's very important he complete it exactly the way he was instructed, no matter who or what tells him otherwise. At every step of his quest, Andrew is faced with a choice. Will he do what he knows he must, or will he take a shortcut? He will meet new friends, bitter enemies, and some who are a little bit of both, as he discovers his story is at once more strange and more magical than he ever thought. Get Andrew and the Fire Drake today at canonpress.com. There will be a link in the show notes. Welcome to Plodcast, episode 111. Episode 111. That is to say, 111. So, let's talk about, uh, well, I don't know what we're going to talk about here. I don't know what to call it. I know know what I'm going to talk about, but what do we call it? Uh, As I'm recording this, um, uh, just a short time ago, the Inspector General uh, for the Justice Department finished up his uh, report on uh, the behavior of... um, uh, former FBI director uh, James Comey, and uh, said that basically he bro- violated a bunch of FBI rules and protocols, and the precedent he said was da- set was dangerous, and and uh, it was badly done. Uh, badly done, Emma, is what the uh, the report said. Now this just had to do with Comey's handling of the notes that he took of certain um, meetings that he had with President Trump. There are, other, there are other aspects of Comey's behavior that are under the microscope as well that are going to come down in, in subsequent reports. After this report came down, um, the uh, attorney general, uh, William Barr, said that, he was not, that Comey was not going to be prosecuted for these. And, and that's the hook that I want to talk about for a minute. Um, I've said before, I think I said here on the podcast before, that I think it is a bad precedent and really, really dangerous uh, to have as a standard uh, operating procedure an election and have that election followed by the one who lost the election being thrown into jail. Okay, so, um, and this is, but this is a real problem. It's a real problem because Oftentimes, the person who lost the, the election uh, deserves to be thrown into jail, and if they were anybody else, they would be in jail. Uh, so, um, yeah, put it put it this way: if uh, if Hillary Clinton were Helen Schwartz, and she was doing at the state level the kind of things that Hillary did at the national level, uh, with the same kind of high handedness. Well then, uh, dear old Helen would be in the would be in the big house. She would be in prison. Uh, there would be prosecutions, and and you say, well, uh, doesn't the Bible require us to have uh, equal weights and measures? Don't shouldn't if if someone violates the law, then shouldn't we make sure that uh, uh, that if they violate the law, then they're prosecuted? Lady Justice has got the blindfold on, and don't we prosecute them no matter who it is? 
Um, yes, there's a point where you have to say that. There's a point where to, to wink and nod at corruption in high places is to allow that, that corruption to metastasize and, and grow further. So it's really, really bad for the body politic for open, overt, everybody can see it from across the country, high levels of corruption and nothing done. Yeah, that's bad. But it's also bad uh, for different reasons to say you're a crook. If you're a crook and you're running for president and you have a substantial base of support in the population, you're you know, one of the major parties nominated you, for example, and you're running for president, and we have the pattern of, um, okay, if you lose, if you're guilty of any criminal misconduct and you lose this election, it's into the slammer with you. Well, one of the things that you're, you have to remember that you're doing is that you're incentivizing the, the person who's already demonstrated that they don't, uh, they've already demonstrated they don't have any respect for the law, and you've simply incentivized them to make sure that they don't lose whatever happens, right? So um, if you've got people who are already um, playing dirty, if they're already fighting dirty in the political sphere, what's going to happen if you incentivize them by saying, and um, if you don't carry Wisconsin, <laughs> it's 30 years for you. Um, well, what's going to happen is a lot of dead people in Wisconsin are going to start voting. Okay, so this is a this is a tightrope that we have to walk, right? You'd, we don't want to say you're, you're a national figure, therefore you get to commit whatever crimes you want. You can um, mishandle classified information. You can take bribes uh, uh, from the Russians. You can, do, you, you, know, you can do all of these things, and you can do them in a high-handed way, and we're going to say, well, you're a national figure, so we're not going to come after you. Um, but on the other hand, if you do come after them, then sometimes you're not really cleaning up Washington. You're ensuring that the dirty folks in Washington are going to fight to the last ditch. So you've got to make sure that you um, uh, you've got to make sure that when you finally prosecute, you, it's not um, your your case. It's got to be manifestly apparent that your case is stronger than I got more votes than she did, or I got more votes than he did. Um, otherwise, it, the election is going to, the, the different sides of the election are going to just be serving as the mobs yelling outside the courthouse. And, and that is going to result in um, terrible miscarriages of justice. So, uh, now in this, ca in this case, it, uh, I'm kind of uh, pleased that the, that the legal process, the investigations are going so slowly, because all the concerns that I have about the loser of the election going to jail um, are, are the kind of concerns that would be raised if the loser of the election goes to jail three weeks after the election. But if the loser of the election goes to jail three years after the election, I don't think I don't think all the um, the same dynamics are in play. So if the next election cycle is heating up and we're in the middle of the campaign, and the evidence finally comes together, 
and Hillary Clinton, for example, is indicted three years after Donald Trump um, uh, was sworn in, uh, you don't have you don't have the feeling or the sensation or the optics of that's not a trial. That's just settling scores. So um, it seems to me that the uh, investigative process is continuing to go forward. And I think it is appropriate for the people who were breaking the law in order to keep the whole Russian collusion story alive. Um, I think it's fine now uh, for them to be held accountable for what they did. So we're continuing with um, podcast episode 111. And our, our Hamartiology section, uh, our study of sin in the New Testament, comes to the word apostereo, apostereo, and it's rendered into English in a few different ways. The basic meaning is to defraud, and that's how that's how it's used in Mark ten nineteen. So um, in that passage, Jesus is speaking. Thou knowest the commandments: do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. Now, the interesting thing about this citation is that Jesus is listing the Ten Commandments, but defraud not is just inserted into the list. It's not one of the Ten Commandments. There is no one of the Ten Commandments. The the spirit of it, of course, would be against fraud. Um, So even though defraud not is obviously in the spirit of the thing, nevertheless, he says, thou shalt not, thou shalt, you know, all these things, and then he just throws uh, defraud not uh, in there. But that's our word, apostereo. In 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8, Paul uses the word twice when he's objecting to Christians who are taking one another to court in front of unbelieving judges. He says in the first instance, instance that we should rather be defrauded rather, rather than to have that happen. So rather than have your case, your dispute, you know, Bob's widget manufacturing, um, Bob is a member of a, the church and Fred, the guy he's in the dispute with, is a member of the same church, and they have a uh, dispute over a delivery, and the case goes before a pagan judge. Now, Paul says you should, uh, the business owner or the, or the vendor or whoever it is that's getting, getting ripped off should prefer getting ripped off than to take it before an unbelieving judge. Now, the problem, the problem for Paul is not that the judge is a civil magistrate. The problem for Paul is that he's an unbelieving pagan. Uh, so, if you, if you envision a, um, a Christian commonwealth, a Christian nation, and two Christians get into a snarl, a business snarl, there's absolutely no problem uh, with that snarl going to civil court. The Bible does not prohibit uh, brothers settling things in civil court. Um, The Bible prohibits uh, believers going before unbelieving pagan courts. That's the problem. So, in a Christian nation with Christian laws, with a Christian foundation to laws, and a Christian judge, of course, Christians may um, uh, take it to court. That's what the courts are for. Uh, But if you're dealing with pagan Roman pagan judges, Paul says you should rather eat that ten thousand um, dollar invoice than to ha- ask the pagans to settle it for you. 
Uh, so he says, um, now therefore, and now therefore there is utterly at fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? There's our word. Why don't you allow yourself to be defrauded? Now, in the next verse, he intimates that an unwillingness to be defrauded is tantamount to a willingness to defraud. The spirit is the same. The spirit of me first is the same. Uh, when Paul's summing, summing it up, he says, Nay, you do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. So, if you don't listen to Paul in verse 7, and you're not willing to be defrauded, then the chances are pretty good that you're willing to go ahead and go, go, take the next step and actively defraud. It's interesting that Paul uses the same word again in the very next chapter. This is 1 Corinthians 6 we've been in. Uh, the very next chapter, he, he's, he uses the same word when talking about sexual relations between a husband and a wife. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So for, for a husband to withhold sex, or for a wife to withhold sex, either as a tool of manipulation, or pressure, or blackmail, or emotional blackmail, um, the Apostle Paul calls that a species of fraud. You are violating the terms of the covenant. Um, if someone promises to deliver X number of widgets for XYZ price, and then they don't, that's fraud. If someone gets married and they're not willing to have sexual relations with the person they're married to, uh, the Apostle Paul says that that is fraud. So, there's a few other instances. In uh, 1 Timothy 6.5, the same word is rendered as destitute, and you can see the connection if, when you when you hear the context. First Timothy six five, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. So destitute of the truth, uh, the same word uh, there. It's like um, they've defrauded themselves of the truth. And then last, in James 5.4, the idea of fraud proper comes back to the fore. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So, um, you've, hired, you've hired men to go work your fields, and then because you're the big plantation owner, you're the big farmer, and you've got enough money to afford lawyers, and these guys are just day laborers, and they, they live from paycheck to paycheck, or they get paid at the end of the day, and that's what they need to make it to the next morning. If they're in that position, then you can say, oh, sorry, I'm not going to be able to pay you today. You know, there, there are some issues. I've got some issues with the bank. Um, that kind of foolishness um, the, the Apostle James calls fraud. And God is watching, he says. All right, continuing in podcast uh, 111, uh, the book I want to um, talk about is uh, one of C.S. Lewis's lesser-known uh, works, but it's, it's an extremely valuable work. Lesser-known, but extremely valuable. Uh, the book is Experiment in Criticism. Experiment in Criticism. Now, 
uh, he what Lewis does here is um, uh, flips the whole enterprise of criticizing a work of art. He's talking here about books, but I think you could you could uh, do the same thing with film. I think you could do the same thing with uh, pieces of music. You know, uh, music uh, perform you know Broadway performances or whatever. But what he what he argues is that we should um, we should evaluate a book by whether or not it admits of or encourages a particular kind of reading and rereading. So um, uh, Lewis, Lewis is happy to say that a, there's a particular kind of book that is simply a consumption item. It's it's the equivalent of um, Twinkies or Ding Dongs that you bought at the convenience store. Uh, you're, you've got a short flight and you bought a, a pot boiler book um, in the airport, uh, in an airport bookstore. And it's the kind of book you will read to keep yourself from being bored on the flight. And then six months later, you won't be able to, you won't be able to rem- remember any of the characters or any, you know, you won't be able to remember anything about it because all you were doing was giving yourself, um, that's the kind of book that's simply a group organized daydream. Um, you don't remember your daydreams from three years ago. Um, and if someone group organizes the daydream and, and, and you read it, there's nothing there that draws you back. So Lewis says that the mark of a good book, we, we, we ought to think twice about condemning a book if we see someone returning to it again and again. So if someone keeps coming back to the well, if someone keeps coming back to this place, um, uh, which they wouldn't do with a, a simple consumption item, um, if the, we would have to say, we should conclude, I think there's something in this book uh, that I'm missing. So I'm... Um, I don't, uh, I don't see it, but I see this other person coming back again and again. So I think that there's probably more to it than uh, I initially assumed. So um, uh, Lewis says that basically uh, a good book is the kind of book that encourages and re- rewards rereading. Encourages and rewards rereading. So uh, no, I can't tell you how many times... I've read that hideous strength. Um, I think that's Lewis's. Uh, well, it's a wonderful book. I've re- I've I've read it multiple times, fourteen, fifteen times probably, and um, read it over and over again. And so I know the book pretty well. And um, and if there's a surprise turn, it's kind of a uh, the first time you read the book, it's a surprise, surprise. Um, and then subsequent reads, because you know what's coming, it's your favorite surprise, right? It's, it's the surprise that uh, doesn't surprise at all, and, and it's, at the same time, it's rewarding. There's something that's good about it. Lewis uh, says that that kind of thing is a, a testament to what kind of book that is. But you don't do that. You don't find people doing that with Harlequin ro- romances or um, with pulp Western uh, novels where, you know, the, the novels could be writ- written by a committee or just cranked out. Um, it just doesn't, just doesn't work that way. So 
experiment and criticism for anybody who cares about evaluating um, the books they read and, and, and you want to think deeply about what makes, what makes a good book good. Um, experiment and criticism is a good place to start. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.